Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Before we get started, I've got something to share If you're not already a subscriber to the FT, this is for you. From Tuesday afternoon right through till Thursday morning and all day on Wednesday, September the 18th, we're lifting the paywall on FT.com. That means you can read everything from the latest on global oil supply to the ins and outs of the US-China trade dispute, all for free. And I'll recommend a few stories to get started in our show notes. Now, on with today's show. Joining me in the studio today are Nicholas McGaw, our retail banking correspondent, and Henry Sanderson, our commodities correspondent. Joining us down the line from Strasbourg is Merin Khan, our EU correspondent, and our guest this week is Tom Merry from Accenture. This week, we'll take a look at Facebook's Libra project as the alternative currency and payments network is quizzed by the world's central bankers. Secondly, a look at the stratospheric growth of the UK's digital banking startups. And finally, JP Morgan. Is the shine coming off the world's biggest bank as its metals traders are charged with manipulation? First, though, to that Facebook Libra story. The project was launched a few months ago by the world's giant social networking provider, nominally as a way to give its users access to payments through a new digital currency, which it would peg to existing currencies. We're joined now by Merin Khan, who's been following the story. As Facebook and Libra are quizzed by the world's central bankers, she's joining us from Strasbourg at the European Parliament, actually. Merin, thanks very much for joining us. It's a really interesting development, this, isn't it, about the Libra project. They are engaging now with the official sector, if you like, the central bankers that run the global financial system. And on Monday, they went to Basel to engage. Yeah, what happened on Monday was there was a meeting of about 26 central bank officials from across the world. So the Federal Reserve, all the way across to Saudi Arabia, who sit in a format under the Bank of International Settlements. It's a format chaired by Benoit Curé, who's also leading the international push on how to think about stablecoin, as it's called. And Libra was invited for a first sort of fireside chat with these regulators, along with other people interested in this sort of world. So JP Morgan were also there because they've had ideas about what to do with this sort of stablecoin project. And it's all leading up to, I think it will be a major report which these regulators will feed to finance ministers in October at the G7. And that will be a kind of launching pad for the ministers at the political level to start really making decisions about whether and how they want to regulate. So, Merin, this is a far cry clearly from the kind of early developments in the cryptocurrency world, the whole idea that Bitcoin and other similar currencies were 
a revolutionary, anarchic kind of alternative to established currencies. This is all about engaging with the very establishment that those cryptos were rebelling against. Where do we end up, do you think? Yeah, I think there's a fundamental difference between how Libra is being formulated and what Libra will serve than something like Bitcoin, which you could say is a sort of libertarian response to people who don't want to have money and transactions always under the glare of the financial system and regulators. Libra is proposed as a currency which will be based on an existing currency basket. So everything that we use, like the yen, the euro, the pound, sterling, so real assets. And I think that's also slightly more alarming for regulators and for governments because these are the currencies we use in our everyday life and how they then interact with Libra or how they underpin Libra will also affect what central bankers should do with monetary policy, how they should set interest rates, you know, how they should think about their own currency depreciation if it could have after effects on something like the Libra project. So that's why I think there's a more direct and immediate sense in which anything that Facebook does like this will involve their own currencies. And as we know, one of the reasons why it's both important and potentially scary is the very scale, the potential scale of this operation, given Facebook's billions of users. Just to finish, this meeting which took place in Basel, which as experts on financial regulation will know, is the global capital for financial regulation. It's where the Bank for International Settlements is based. It's where the Basel Committee on Banking Regulation is based. And it's a otherwise unremarkable Swiss town. But when Libra and other financial representatives went there on Monday, do we have any idea what came of this meeting? It was a closed door meeting after all. It was a closed-door meeting which I think went on all day, so it was over eight hours sort of sitting in a kind of conference-type format where people were grilled by these regulators. The noises that we're getting out of Basel, that it was a general sort of chat. One of the big issues that you're grappling with when you talk to regulators is they don't know what Libra is and they don't have enough clarity about Facebook's designs for it. So we've already seen the European Commission sending out questionnaires to Facebook, about the sort of fundamentals of what they envisage. And this was the first major face-to-face encounter between people like Kure and senior central bankers with the Libra guys in front of them and putting them under that level of scrutiny. And so it's important in the sense that it was the first major encounter, but I imagine it will be the first of many. I suspect you're right, and probably a relatively slow glide path, but clearly one that signals the collaborative spirit that at least the Libra people are keen to pursue. Marine, thank you very much for joining us from Strasbourg and finding a way to talk to us despite the slightly lively background that you're working in there. Thanks very much. Well, let's move on now to our second story of the day and a look at the stratospheric growth among some of the UK's digital banking startups. We're joined by Tom Merry from Accenture. Tom, thanks for coming in. You've produced a very interesting piece of research looking really at the digital-only banks in the broad UK banking market and quite how fast some of these brands have grown, Revolut, N26 and Monzo in particular. If my reading of this data is right, it looks like they've doubled their customer numbers over the past year or so, but also at the current growth rate, in total, I think they've got about 11 million customers, those three between them. Current growth rate, they'd go on and surpass Lloyd's, which is the biggest UK bank with 30 million customers within a year. That's pretty striking. 
It's pretty impressive. I mean, I think we're starting to keep a very close eye on the digital-only banks, as you know, Patrick. And the benefit of having some time series data now is to observe trends like this. So these are UK predominant banks, but some of these customer numbers are global numbers. So there are some of those banks you called out, which there's an element of accounts outside of the UK. But nonetheless, what's striking is that in the first half of 2019, they've built on their base of about 8 million to reach 13 million customers. That's a rate of growth of about 170%, contrasted with the incumbents who are probably growing over the last three years at under half a percent. So it's quite striking how quickly that's happening. If you continue at that rate, then our subset of banks that we include in the analysis would reach 35 million customers globally within 12 months. So it is really impressive that they continue to be acquiring customers at pace. I suppose that begs one question. Yes, there has been a super fast rate of growth for whatever reason. Is that sustainable? Everything would suggest that this is sustainable because they are now looking at new geographies. So they're bringing this same proposition to markets where the analysis and evidence would suggest that their proposition and their unique selling points are going to be similarly attractive. I think in the UK, it's clear that at some point they hit the buffers around how many new customers that they can acquire. I think it's also important to note, and this comes out in the analysis, that we don't believe that customer acquisition in of itself is going to drive sustained financial performance. And so a little bit of this is about how long is the window open for them to acquire customers, but also turn that into revenue and profit. Well, that is the other big question, isn't it? The sustainability of this operation depends on them growing profitably at some point. And at the moment, most of these digital-only banks are burning through money and are having to raise fresh capital from investors as a result. How is that going to pan out? You're right. So they've been raising fresh money for some quarters now and years. And our analysis suggests that for our subset, they're losing about £9 per customer. So with the exception of one or two that have possibly tipped into profitability this year, the vast majority aren't profitable. That is partly a result of their inability to gather deposits. So what doesn't match the customer acquisition is the gathering of deposits, which allows them then to do other activities. That has been slightly addressed in the first half of this year. So we've seen a jump from £70 per customer to £350. That's the average balance. That's the average balance per customer for these digital-only banks. That's a five times increase. It's nowhere near the average that an incumbent would have, which is somewhere around £9,000. But it does show that it's growing and it's growing quite quickly. You're right, though. I think that would have to continue at pace and it would have to be supported by investors putting money into these banks if they are going to reach a tipping point when they can achieve sustained profitability. And of course, I suppose one of the macro factors that has allowed these digital banks to grow so fast, i.e. the state of the incumbent banks, the troubles that they've been through over the past 10 years, has also made it a less attractive market to be trying to win this business in because ultra low interest rates that have accompanied the post-financial crisis years have just held back the opportunity to make a decent margin. That's right. And so these banks... The whole business model and the premise is that they're going to be less driven by interest margin as a proportion of their income. And they're looking to, I think, revolutionise the way that banking is done, where they can drive non-interest income from being a partner player in the ecosystem. It's been very tough, of course, for the incumbent banks, combination of low interest rates, margin compression, uncertainty in the economy, PPI drag. And despite that, my observation would be, despite all of those headwinds for the incumbents, they remain profitable. And during that period, what we've seen is these digital-only banks, some of whom have been around for five years now, have gathered customer numbers, but they haven't made that breakthrough in terms of profitability. 
Absolutely. Well, we'll keep a close eye on them, that's for sure. Um, Tom Murray, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. So, Nick, you heard what Tom has to say. Is it credible? Is this growth sustainable? Well, they're certainly going to try to keep it up. Whether they actually can, I think there's two parts to it. There's the UK-specific story and then this broader international expansions. In the UK, it's at the very least going to get a lot more expensive to keep growing at this rate. Some of these banks are a couple of years old now and the easy customers have already been got. And now a lot of the money that has been raised over the last couple of months is being used to fund essentially just big advertising campaigns, which help spread the word outside of London and the southeast and big cities, which is where the early strength has been. Those advertising campaigns help increase their reach, but it also drives up costs. I mean, you see Starling Bank is on every tube station at the moment. Monzo have actually got TV ads. And then on the international front, Revolut and N26 are already in lots of countries. Monzo has recently launched in the USA. In those cases, you might have arguably less developed markets, so don't need to be as reliant on big advertising campaigns to try and get out across the whole country, but they come with their own differing regulatory burdens and costs, which just highlights what Tom was saying, that it's one thing to get the numbers and they can try doing that, but if it costs you so much money to do so and you don't make anything out of it, then it's not necessarily the best thing to aim for. No, I suppose the bottom line is, what is the point if you're just burning through money? One would think that those who are putting money into these private, nearly all private companies that we're talking about here, do have some end in sight in terms of the point at which they will turn profitable. How far off is that, do you think? For most of the mainstream digital banks, i.e. the ones that are doing current accounts that are for regular retail customers, that point is still a way off. They have at least acknowledged that the challenge is there, which shouldn't be taken for granted compared to some technology companies that you might be familiar with. But they are generally no longer taking that kind of tech startup approach of, oh, well, we're not worried about profits whatsoever. We'll just chase the numbers and then we'll work out a business model down the line. That said, they haven't exactly said when the profits will come, but they are trying. Monzo has been really pushing recently to encourage customers to make it their main bank account, lift up those average balances, which makes it much easier to make money. And also on the other side of the balance sheet, moving to offer more profitable products like personal loans and overdrafts and really uh, push them a lot more. People like Revolut coming up with new products like stock trading, which helps to generate fees and also really pushing the sort of subscription models as well to try and increase revenues. But so far, none of them have actually said when this will start to really pay off. Well, when you find one that is making money, do come back and tell us. Thanks very much for that, Nick. Let's move on to our third and final topic of the day and a look at JP Morgan, which last week hit a record share price. It seems shareholders can't get enough of JP stock, but slightly embarrassingly, three of the bank's traders have now been charged with market manipulation in the precious metals market. Here to explain what's gone on is Henry Sanderson, our commodities correspondent. Henry, thanks ever so much for being with us. Tell us exactly what's happened here. Yes, on Monday, the United States Department of Justice unveiled charges against three JP Morgan metals traders for what they called a multi-year market manipulation and racketeering conspiracy. And what's interesting about this is one of the people charged was Michael Nowak, and he is head of the bank's global precious metals desk. So he's really very high up in the precious metals business at the bank. It sounds embarrassing at the very least. What's the penalty? We don't know yet um, about the penalty because at this stage, these are just charges. So it's clear just to point out that Mike Nowak's lawyer has said 
He's done nothing wrong and they look forward to representing him at trial and expect him to be fully exonerated. So at this moment, these are just charges against these three. And the other two gentlemen haven't responded, have they? The other two gentlemen so far haven't made any statements. But we've seen with previous banking scandals, such as LIBOR and the FX, that you know there can be quite stiff penalties. And what was interesting was uh, on Monday, the Department of Justice said the investigation is ongoing and they're going to look at wherever the facts lead, whether that's across other desks at JP Morgan or critically higher up the chain at JP Morgan. And I guess potentially across other banks, because of course, when you mentioned the LIBOR interest rate manipulation scandal or FX, the foreign exchange manipulation scandal, these brought in multiple banks with traders colluding across the market, not just within institutions. How broad could this go, do you think? Is there the scope for this to just be the very tip of the iceberg? Well, already it seems quite widespread. And interestingly, one of the three, Christopher Jordan, he actually left JP Morgan in December 2009. But the indictment shows chat records between him and those still at JP Morgan after he had left. So perhaps this is more widespread at other places. And three traders from JP Morgan's precious metals desk have already pleaded guilty to these charges. They've left JP Morgan, but they pleaded guilty. So this sounds at least very widespread within the JP Morgan precious metals desk and perhaps at other banks too. And are they senior figures in the industry? So Michael Nowak, who is the most senior person charged on Monday, he is head of JP Morgan's precious metals desk. And JP Morgan, along with HSBC, is one of the really big bullion banks. So in London, those two banks account for the majority of the gold traded in the city, as well as other precious metals. And this is physical gold stored in vaults traded around the world. And Mr. Nowak also sits on the board of the London Bullion Market Association, which is supposed to regulate London's gold markets. This is hugely embarrassing for the industry at a time when it's trying to prove greater transparency to regulators and trying to prove that precious metals such as gold are a liquid asset. So this is hugely embarrassing. Yet another example of self-regulation not really working. Thank you very much for explaining it all, Henry. Thank you. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you very much to Nick and Henry here in the studio and also to our guest, Tom Merry from Accenture. And thanks to Marine for joining us from Strasbourg. Thank you for listening as well. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. <laughs>